Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello, friends. Welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. My name is Don Payne, your host. We are grateful that you have once again, or maybe for the first time, chosen to spend a little time with us. We uh, try to work out in podcast format our mission statement here at Denver Seminary, which is to train people to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. So we have all manner of interesting guests and interesting conversations uh, along those lines. Uh, For this episode, let's think about apologetics. Uh, We can use the categories of things that change and things that remain the same uh, to think about problems people have with Christianity. Uh, Because in one sense, there are always new challenges, new objections, new misgivings, or at least new iterations, new packagings of those misgivings. Um, And yet some of them remain the same even uh, because it's the same kinds of concerns just getting articulated in different form. Well, the, the field of apologetics is devoted to addressing a wide range of issues that trip people up when they think about Christianity. And our longtime colleague, Dr. Doug Groteis, has given his life to that field, apologetics, uh, and to offering reasonable responses to objections and questions that people have about the Christian faith. Doug's been with us before, but Doug, welcome back. Good to have you here again. Thank you. Happy to be here. Some of you may know that Doug um, is a very accomplished author, has lots of books out, and perhaps what he would call his magnum opus is the uh, book Christian Apologetics that was released uh, in its first edition when, Doug? 2011. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just recently has come out with a second, has released a second edition uh, of Christian Apologetics uh, with uh, some new material, eight chapters, right. though he corrected me just before we got started. He thought it was seven. Yeah. In fact, I, you said it says in the book seven, right? But it's actually eight. Yeah, I lost track. So in the introduction, it says seven new chapters. And then a few weeks ago, I went back and highlighted all the new chapters and found out it was eight. So <laughs> please don't hold that against me when you read the book, <laughs> if anyone notices. Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank on, you. Because um, I'm sure this was not nearly as much work as writing the first edition, mm-hmm. but no small amount of work in doing right. these revisions and these editions. Well, the first one was about 750 pages, and I thought that was a little too thin. So this one is about 840 pages, but the print is smaller. So there's well, really... Well, that's, that's good news. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, get your magnifying glasses out. But really, it's almost like an entire new book added to the previous book. Okay. Tell us uh, a little bit about what you've Mm -hmm. added and what's been revised. Yeah, the first one I added was I've been teaching my book for years here at Denver Seminary and other places, and after a while I realized that I needed to defend the institution of the church. And this is one of the problems with a lot of people who consider themselves spiritual or maybe even Christian. They don't feel any affiliation or allegiance to the church. So I added a chapter called In Defense of the Church, And I went from Christology to ecclesiology. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So if Jesus is the divine Savior, if he died on the cross to atone for our sins and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he's at the right hand of the Father, then I think we need to take very seriously the institution he came to create. So I found that most Protestant apologetics books don't have a chapter defending the church. 
So I do that in this one. Yeah, good. And and that's really part of what I wanted to talk uh, talk mm-hmm. with you about, knowing that that was a key aspect of the revised material. Right. Um, you also talk a little bit, and maybe not a little bit. You talk about the uh, the problems involved in the hiddenness of God. Right. Right. And I want to mm-hmm. be able to loop back to that and right. have some conversation with you about that. And when I when I opened with remarks about things that change and things that stay the same, mm-hmm. I really had in mind that issue of the church, the question of the church, because um, the church has probably been one of the ongoing. Uh, problem spots for people throughout generations, maybe centuries, mm-hmm. and yet the particular misgivings, the particular tangles and questions people have about the church might change from era to era, mm-hmm. I suspect. So I want to get into some of that. Right. Um, first, maybe tell us just a little bit about how um, how some of, how any of these concerns, whether it's the church or the, the hiddenness of God, um, how does that relate to your own story? Mm. Well, it all does, I think, one way or another. Uh, with the church, ever since I became a Christian, with the exception of one summer, I don't know how this happened, but the summer of 1977, I've been a Christian for a year, and I did not attend a church during that time. I don't really know why. I wasn't uh, having struggles with doubt or anything like that. But besides that, about four-month period, I've always been involved in an evangelical church of one kind or another, whether it's uh, charismatic or Baptist or Evangelical Covenant, uh, even Pentecostal, went to a four-square church for a time, and and I'm a very happy Anglican right now. Uh, But I've always realized that the church is not optional for a follower of Jesus. We uh, need to be involved with the church. We need to worship together, pray together, understand the Scripture, exhort one another. So there's a strong apologetic for the church— as the body of Christ, the temple of God. There's so many images there, the household of faith and so on. And then the church itself is also an apologetic for the truth of Christ. Paul says that if people are worshiping God rightly and the Spirit is in their midst, then unbelievers will realize that God is among his people during these worship services. He speaks to that in 1 Corinthians. So I have been a person very involved in one kind of evangelical church or another for now, I guess, 46 years. Uh, just last week was the 46th anniversary of uh, my being baptized after I converted. Mm-hmm. So I realized that all the apologetics in the world is not very good if people think, they okay, now I believe certain things about the Bible and Christ, and I'm I'm good now, I'm fine. No, you need to be involved with the church. You need to worship with other believers. You need to realize you are a sibling to other men and women in Christ, and that's not a small thing. That's crucial to Christian obedience and also to the whole task of apologetics. You know, as a theologian, I have noticed um, what you mentioned just a moment ago, that in many evangelical uh, circles or theologies, what we call ecclesiology, the doctrine of the Mm -hmm. Church, gets um, short shrift. It, it's mm-hmm. often the, the caboose. It, it's a, it's a tag along right. in the list of doctrines that we study, which, which itself is rather telling because if you look in some other Christian tradition, traditions like Eastern mm-hmm. Orthodoxy, for right. example, there's a very different understanding of the centrality of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when many evangelical circles, as you and I would know them, the church is, uh, certainly considered important, but not 
not nearly as, as theologically central in right. the same sense as other doctrines may be. Right. And, and I wonder what, um, between the first edition mm-hmm. and second edition of the book, what were some of the triggers that made you realize mm-hmm. that you needed to give more attention to that? Well, I think part of it is the movement from being a, a rather low church evangelical to a higher church evangelical, and that has to do with beginning to attend an Anglican church in about 2007, and never going back. And I think I developed a strong appreciation for the liturgy, especially the Eucharist and so on, and realized that the church, although I always knew this, but as I got more involved in a liturgical church, that the church is extremely formative in who we are as believers. It's not something that should ever be optional. And that the form of the liturgy tells us the gospel every week. So we know the gospel and we actually perform, in a way, the gospel through our actions, through the confession of sin, the confession of the creed, and so on. Uh, We are participating in this objectively true, rational, and existentially pertinent account of reality. So I guess I started to see the Church as more central in the whole task of apologetics. And it's interesting, Don, you and I have been doing doctrinal interviews now for longer than either one of us would like to admit. Not interviewing each other. No, but interviewing but, students. Right. I'm sorry. I'm using in-group language here. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do interview each other once in a while. I worry about you sometimes. No, well, you should. But uh, we interview students as their summative experience at Denver Seminary to get the Master of Divinity degree. And I have found now for almost 30 years that typically, not always, the least developed part of their theology is ecclesiology. Oh. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that over the years. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. My experience mm-hmm. would bear that out. Mm-hmm. As you, you, I know you're familiar with a lot of the um, kind of social science research that has gone on among um, skeptics or people who've uh, turned their back on the church and why they do so. It does seem, to me anyway, that um, some of that research is is demonstrating that the church is one of the leading reasons why people either reject Christianity or won't come to it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what have your conversations borne out along that line? Well, I think people are reluctant to engage institutions, especially I think if I can overgeneralize millennials and Gen Z, people are very, very uh, skeptical of institutions. So people will say things like, well, I'm uh, distrusting of uh, organized religion and there's been so many abuses and my response is, would you rather have disorganized religion? So we need structures <laughs> for our lives, right? Uh, we need patterns and structures and traditions of authority in our lives. And every institution on earth has its flaws and has its failures, certainly. But the difference with the church is not merely a human institution. It's instituted by God himself. And we are warned in Scripture about the kind of failures that will occur. Think of Paul's letters to Corinth, the horrible things that are going on there. So it's not like corruption or misdeeds in the church are anything new. But what distinguishes the church from any other human gathering is uh, the truth of a gospel that should be proclaimed and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which should be there. Now there are, sadly, apostate churches, so we've got to make that distinction. And that's something I mentioned in the book is When I talk about the church, I'm talking about churches that affirm the full authority of Scripture and preach the gospel and have the ability to reform themselves on the basis of Scripture, and they have not gone the way of 
the world in doctrines or ethics or things like that. But, uh, you know, there's a kind of minimalism I think a lot of Americans have about spirituality, which is, yes, I believe there's higher power or a spiritual force, and the church can do some good, but it's really optional for the religious or for the spiritual life. People still tend to use the word religion in a negative sense. So what I think we need is to be extremely involved in a Bible-believing church and evangelize people, do apologetics, and invite them to the church. I was recently talking to a young man, actually, I won't say who it is, who graduated from our school many years ago, who has not been involved in a church for years and years, and I have no indication he fails to consider himself a Christian. But somehow he just lost traction with the local church, so I I let him have it, and uh, he listened to me. And uh, I gave him a copy of uh, the new edition of Christian Apologetics, and I said, now please read that chapter in defense of the church, because we need you back. You you know what? It occurs to me that when we think about apologetic conversations broadly, and and the many kinds of questions, Mm -hmm. misgivings that people have about the Christian faith, quite often people seem to be rejecting or pushing back against a version of Christianity that is distorted. In other words, they're rejecting mm-hmm. a Christianity that you and I might reject. Right. Uh, right. Or they're rejecting things they think Christians believe that they don't actually believe. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether the same thing, or whether you think the same thing might be true with people's rejection or misgivings of the church. Are they rejecting a distortion? Are they, or, the, or are they rejecting something that, yeah, in fact, is messed up, but it's still only game in town? I mean, yeah, I think some of the rejection might be based on ignorance. Some of it is based on caricature, can be based on images of the church and Christianity you see in popular media or films or things like that. But really the best way to discover what is happening in a particular church is to attend and to be involved and maybe meet with the leadership or learn something about what the church is all about and not take it secondhand. But the church is is a whipping boy, you know, for everybody, and there have been scandals in various churches over many things, and it's very distressing when we see that, but the entire institution is not discredited by the failure or the foibles of many of its followers. And I always go back to Scripture itself. I said this earlier, but the Scripture itself tells us that there will be false teachers, there will be frauds. People will misbehave and they'll need to repent or maybe even be disciplined by the church. I've got my Bible open right here. It's all here. So if you take the Bible seriously, you get the resources to handle the kind of problems that occur within the church. But I remember telling a friend of mine years ago who was always criticizing the church, but was a Christian, I said, well, you need to be, if you're going to be a critic, be a loving critic, but be a critic within the church, not outside carping, throwing rocks at it be part, you know, to use an old language, be part of the solution or be part of a positive force for good within the church instead of pulling out and saying, well, it's got this problem and that problem. Um, I have been blessed to be involved in many different, very Bible-centered, very loving churches over the years of different denominations, different traditions, all evangelical Protestants. But some people haven't. Some people have been terribly abused, even sexually abused and so on. But Again, as you said, this is the only game in town. Jesus said, uh, 
on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we have a divinely sanctioned institution and we need to be a part of it. We may, this, this may take us too far off into the weeds since neither one of us are therapists and that's probably a good thing. It is a good thing. Um, <laughs> but you, you mentioned those who've had abusive experiences, sometimes mm-hmm. egregious yeah. and, and toxic abusive experiences in the context of the church, sometimes um, sometimes an experience with actual pastors or other church leaders. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, what it's like mm-hmm. to navigate all of that when that is one's viscerally and deeply embedded experience of what the church is. Right. Um, how, how, do, how, how, do we, how do we move through yeah, that? Yeah, recovery from abusive church situations. Yeah. Well, uh, I have a friend who's been a student here who came out of a cult. Her cult was basically her family, her extended family, and it was a polygamous cult. So she has many brothers and sisters and half-brothers and half-sisters. And when she came to study at the seminary, uh, she was still working some of that out, you know, because she had a kind of a PTSD response to being in churches sometimes because of her background. So for her, she has to go back to Scripture and say, well, what really is biblical, what is not biblical, and then how do I get over some of these triggering circumstances and realize that I'm not in the cult that I was brought up with, and this is what true Christianity is, and this is a distortion of it. So it, it's certainly cognitive and rational, and that's where I tend to uh, have my chops is in those areas, not so much the therapeutic and, rela- and relational. But people that come out of very abusive situations need to know what the Bible really teaches, but then they also need some help to desensitize themselves to triggering situations and need to work through a lot of difficulties, yeah, certainly. And I've yeah. known a number of people in that situation. I'm going to put together what may be a rather awkward segue, but uh, when, when we're thinking about the, the church as the place where, well, to use your language, the ch- uh, this is your chapter title mm-hmm. or your section title, the church as an apologetic for Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, unbelievers or anybody should be able to sense the very real presence, the right. reality of God right. in and through the church. And yet, sadly, and for maybe a lot of different reasons, that is often not the case. That makes me think of this other new aspect you've dealt with in your revised edition, which is the hiddenness of God. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, describe that problem. What's, what's involved when we use that language of right. God's hiddenness? Yeah, the basic argument is that if God is all good and all powerful and he wants to be in a relationship with us, why hasn't he made himself more obvious to us? Why are there agnostics and atheists out there? Why do people lose their faith and they say there is no God when at some point they thought there was a God? And this has been a very lively topic in the philosophy of religion for a long time, but especially in the last 30 years. And my first edition did not directly address that, although I dealt with it to some extent through my engagement of Blaise Pascal, because he dealt with this in his writings. And the basic approach that I take is that it's very influenced by Pascal, that God has given us enough evidence and enough reasons to believe if our hearts are inclined in that direction, but he has given enough ambiguity that if our hearts are not inclined in that direction, then we can just attend to other things. We don't 
have to recognize the reality of God if for one reason or another we would rather not. Now, he's, he's not going to just steamroll yes, anybody. Yes, exactly. Fair? Pascal is very helpful with that. Also, C. Stephen Evans has uh, done some very good work on that. He talks about the wide availability of the knowledge of God from nature, from conscience, from Scripture. But then he also talks about the easy deniability of God. I don't like the word easy. I refine that a bit in my book. But God is widely available if our hearts are open, our minds are open in the right way. But you can also set up a way of life that denies the reality of God. In fact, we're not in the dark about that. Romans 1 lays that out very clearly in uh, verses 18 through 32 about God is present, God is knowable, but people do not give thanks, and they suppress the truth about God and create idols and end up worshiping those idols and debauching, debasing themselves. So what I do is I look at the overall evidence for the existence of God. I do that throughout the book, and I say, well, there's plenty of good reasons to believe in God, so why is it that some people don't? I don't think it's because the arguments are bad or because uh, God is not there or God is not really present, but it's rather something within the person. So I explore the idea of self-deception, which philosophers have worked on, and you see that in Romans 1. You see it in other passages in Scripture And I want to make sure to not beg the question and say, well, there is a God, so if you deny him, there's something wrong with you. That would be just presupposing Christianity is true. That would also be kind of an ad hominem against unbelievers. So I have to develop the arguments for God and then try to explain unbelief on the basis of a very real problem we have as human beings, and that is self-deception. But my basic epistemological, theological approach is there's enough evidence to believe if you are so inclined there's enough ambiguity to refuse to pursue God if you were so inclined. And I get really my, my basic insights from Blaise Pascal on that. So I try to develop that in the chapter. You're making me think of uh, some of the biblical imagery where God's, um, God's acts of self-revealing are almost always accompanied by some limitations or some uh, some obscuring, uh, I think particularly of the the cloud um, the, that surrounded Mount Sinai mm-hmm. when Moses mm-hmm. uh, and even right. the, the people of Israel came to the foot of the mountain to meet with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that proximity of God's self-revealing was accompanied by, by, by a cloud. In other words, God, Darkness, uh, God, yeah. Yeah, God always both reveals and conceals at the same time. Right. And that's, that's probably, at least in in my understanding, that's probably a paradigm for the ongoing knowledge of God as, as well. Uh, to to the extent that we know God, there is always unknown mm-hmm. about God. And that, mm-hmm. that, that plagues us. Right. It? Yeah, that's been very important for me, especially with the whole issue of the problem of evil and why do these horrible things happen. And for me, I think uh, the most trying and difficult thing in my life was losing my first wife, Becky, to yeah. dementia. And I wrote a book about that. I think we talked about it we on did. an earlier podcast, yeah. Walking Through Twilight. But one thing that I had been thinking about and meditating on for years and years, especially through the book of Ecclesiastes, is that we can know enough about God to trust him in the areas where we don't know what he's doing. So there are a number of scriptures that speak to this. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine talks about 
the revelation of God and then the secret things of God, the things that he will not reveal. And you see that also in Ecclesiastes. You see it in Romans 8. After Paul has laid out the revelation of God so thoroughly and wonderfully, and then he ends with this doxology where he says, essentially, uh, let, me, let me try to get to it here. It's, I do not want to botch it. by. Uh, uh, this is very comforting. He says, this is the doxology 1133 through 36. I need to memorize it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of a Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So this is a beautiful uh, way of saying God has revealed who he is, how he's worked with us, the plan of salvation. Paul's just talked about Israel and so on. And then as sort of finalizing that, he says, but there's still so much we don't know about God, but we can know enough about him to glorify him and to try to live in terms of what he has revealed to us. So I like to put it in terms of our knowledge of God provides a framework of understanding. But within that framework, there are a lot of pockmarks of mystery. That's a good image. uh, Yeah. So my brilliant wife, who was in Mensa and wrote books and edited books and was such a brilliant woman, uh, literally loses her mind. Well, who can understand that? I don't even try. But what I tried to do is find meaning in the midst of it. And then given my Christian worldview, and Becky and I worked very hard to have a rational Christian worldview together for over 30 years, we look forward to what was coming. And what was coming was Becky in her resurrected body, where her brain is working better than it ever has, and her body is without the effects of the curse or sin or anything else. And I would often read to her from Revelation 21, 22, 1 Corinthians 15, and it wasn't just wishful thinking. You know, we had good reason to believe that this will happen. And a lot of it is this big apologetics book. Becky helped me uh, edit the first edition of the book, and that was the last thing she ever could edit. Mm -hmm. She lost her ability to edit after that. And once we were driving to go to Olive Garden to eat, and uh, she was lamenting her fate. I don't know, this might have been 2016. And I said, Becky, I know it's horrible, but one day we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. And she looked at me and said, but Doug, is it really true? Mm -hmm. And this is someone who had believed in Christ her entire life, and had really, as I said, worked hard to have a rational, mm-hmm. critically aware faith. But dementia does horrible things to people, and that kind of suffering can really can really uh, jar a person's faith. And I said, Becky, do you remember that big apologetics book that you edited? And, well, the first thing I said, this may sound weird, the first thing I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? She said yes. She had to. And then I said, do you remember the big apologetics book you edited? Yes. I said, well, I assure you that the reasoning and facts back up what we believe. I assure you that uh, there is good and sufficient reason to believe what we believe. So in a way, I was kind of helping her believe. I was almost vicariously believing for her. Yeah, kind of lending her faith in some ways. Mm -hmm. And reminding her of what she held very firmly, uh, which was a bit elusive going through the horrible suffering that she yeah. went through. Suffering can make it elusive. Yeah. It was kind of a John the Baptist moment in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. when John the Baptist who, yeah. who knew, knew knew the Messiah right. uh, intimate, intimately, but when he's 
he's in prison and his life is on the line, he, mm-hmm. you know, he's asking that question: Are you really the one? Yeah, and it's what's a what Jesus passage. telling? You know, yeah. hey, the 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 blind are healed, the lame walk. Mm-hmm. Look at the evidence. Yeah, look at the evidence. I am the Messiah. So that's basically yeah. what I said um, to Becky and encouraged her. And I think that shows the existential power of apologetics, because when we're walking through that twilight of her decline, we didn't always feel the presence of God, the joy of the Lord, by no means. But even when we didn't feel it, we knew it. We knew God was there, even if we didn't feel a palpable presence of love and acceptance and embrace. But uh, we knew too much to go back. So I think apologetics is not only intellectually stimulating and fulfilling, is existentially pertinent to suffering and struggles in life. Well, I appreciate the, the text you read from Paul, especially about what, what knowledge of God is. And it is this knowledge, and, and frankly, this had never occurred to me quite this way until you just read it again, that Paul um, puts together knowledge and words like inscrutable. Right. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. he, he points to the limitations of, of knowledge, mm-hmm. and yet it is knowledge. This is right. this is the, the kind of knowledge we have, a knowledge of a God who is, is knowable and yet um, n- not fully knowable at the right. same time, but right. adequately knowable. Scrutable and inscrutable. <laughs> at the same time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, the unbelievers will say that there is meaningless evil in the world, so therefore there can't be a God if God is all good and all-powerful. And I say, no, there's not meaningless evil, but there is inscrutable evil. But something that I can't understand is not necessarily meaningless. I think all evil has some final purpose. I don't have to know what it is. If I have a cogent, coherent, well-thought-out worldview that explains evil in general in terms of creation, fall, redemption, consummation— and I can look at particular evils and have no clue as to what good they might serve or why God has allowed them. But given that I have a basis for believing in God, believing in the Bible, believing in Christ, that structure of existence that I hold to says it is not meaningless and the story is not over. And that's much better than trying to read the mind of God. Uh, I have no, through my situation with Becky, a lot of people would try to find the good in our suffering, and to sometimes that's helpful. Other times you just no, want to say, not. shut up, <laughs> you yeah, know, just, just, let it be. just suffer with me, and, and we'll, we'll be much happier in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this reminds me of, of the significance of the word trust when, when the Lord invites us, um, calls us mm-hmm. to trust him, that, that implicitly um, suggests that you— you know enough to trust me, but you mm-hmm. will always have questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hence, you're going to have to trust me. Right. Uh, it would not be trust. It would not be faith if we knew the mind of God as God himself knows mm-hmm. his own mind. Right. You, you have, you're going to have to trust me on this. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a rational trust and a rational hope. Mm-hmm. As Paul says in Romans 5, this hope does not disappoint us. And for Paul... Hope in the gospel is actually knowledge, which is quite a different way of using that word that we typically do. I preached on this a few months ago. This hope does not disappoint us. We know that our hopes in Christ, the judgment and regeneration of the universe, will happen. It's not just, wouldn't it be nice if? Yeah. But we know. We know 
that he will come again and restore all things as much as we know he died for our sins and rose from the dead. So the down payment has been made. We're just now in that in-between time. Yeah, yeah. Doug, you've got a, um, if I can shift gears here as we yeah. close up, uh, you have a forthcoming book, I think, with our, our mutual friend, mm. Dr. Ike Shepherdson. Um, right. Tell us just a little bit about, yes, about that. Yes, uh, Ike Shepherdson and I have co-written a book called The Knowledge of God in the World and the Word, An Introduction to Classical Apologetics. Long title, um, very long title, but it's more of an introduction to apologetics, and it's co-written the way we did it. We didn't tell you who the principal author was for each chapter, but there is a principal author, but we signed off on what was done. So it's an introduction to natural theology, how we can argue from for God from nature. It's also a defense of apologetics and a defense of natural theology, because there's some people who think you're just wrong-headed to engage in that kind of thing at all. So we spend a fair amount of time dealing with philosophical objections to apologetics, theological objections to apologetics, and so on. And then we deal with the classic theistic arguments from design, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. And one thing I'm very uh, jazzed about is that Ike was the principal author for the chapter on the ontological argument, and that is a very technical, abstract argument, and he made it, first, very compelling and also very readable. I don't, it's amazing. I couldn't have done that. I have a chapter on the ontological argument in my big book here. I think it's pretty good, but you've got to really be motivated to get through that, and Ike just kind of takes you by the hand and leads you through that so yeah, nicely. He's a so guy. He is, yeah. That's with Zondervan. That'll be out, Lord willing, in December. I should say supply chain willing. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I'm excited Good. about that book. Good. We're hoping that that book will be used as an undergrad textbook Good. at various well, colleges and Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Doug, uh, you have given uh, the Body of Christ great service both Thank with you. both editions of this, and we're mm. excited about this, uh, this new edition particularly, and hope the Lord... This makes good use of that Thank you. and multiplies the use of that. Thank you. And yeah. it can also be used as a doorstop. <laughs> it's a multi-purpose yeah, if you, book. If you can't make it to your local home improvement store and you have this around and you need a doorstop, yep. there you go. Multi-purpose. Indeed. Doug, thanks. Thanks for You're spending welcome. time with us and for the work you've You're done welcome. on this. Friends, we'd uh, love it if you'd uh, visit our website, denverseminary.edu. You'll find a lot of other good resources there. And you can email us if you have any questions or feedback. Our email address is podcast at denverseminary.edu. We'd love it also if you uh, would be so kind as to give us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you uh, use to access uh, our conversations. That would be a great help. And otherwise, um, thanks again for listening to us, and thanks to Krista Ebert for making these conversations happen, for recording them and editing them in such fine fashion. Friends, we hope to talk to you again soon. Take care.